etched in reggae history as Jamaica's first international teen pop sensation, Millie Small's groundbreaking cover single in 1964 helped open the floodgates for the island's musical presence in the global arena. And though her rise to stardom is known by many, her bittersweet journey is told by few. Born 1946 as Millicent Dolly Mae Small in Clarendon, Jamaica, she grew up in the quiet community of Milk River. The child of a plantation overseer, she shared a thatch roof home with seven brothers and five sisters. The local radio station, ZQI, and the clear channels of WLAC out of Nashville, Tennessee, set the musical backdrop in Jamaica during the 50s. And by the time Millie reached her early teens, she was dropping her live reprises of popular R&B tracks for siblings and relatives, soon becoming a local talent favorite in her quiet hometown. This encouragement led to her entry in the Vere Johns Opportunity Knox Showcase in 1960, the most popular talent event in Jamaica of the times, and her 10 shillings prize winning performance at the Palladium Theatre in Montego Bay became the launch platform for the aspiring teen. Support of her aunt, Millie Small settled in the capital city, allowing her greater access to Beat Street in downtown Kingston. The opportunist of the time, Clement Coxon Dodd, wasted no time in snatching the winner to his then fledgling studio label, citing her similarity to Shirley Goodman of the popular stateside duo Shirley and Lee as good odds for churning out a solid hit. But her vocals lacked the finesse of her comparative. And after a few failed recordings, Coxon turned to Owen Gray to fine-tune the artist's vocal delivery. Owen would even record with his young protege as the duo Owen and Millie, delivering two hit singles on Coxon's D-Darling imprint. <laughs> Yeah. 1961's Sugar Plum on the B-side of Owen Gray's Jezebel and 1962's Sit and Cry for Supreme Records, another Cox and Dodd label. Sit and Cry would find its way to the UK via Island Records, becoming a minor hit for the startup label. 
but Owen Gray's own aspirations as a solo act short-circuited the duo and Millie teamed up with Samuel Roy Panton in 1962 for her second duo setup dubbed Roy and Millie. Backpaged by Coxon, the duo would find their debut single We'll Meet with Roy Robinson's E&R Records. They would repeat the success in 1963 on Prince Buster's Voice of the People with the single Over and Over. The track became a hit in the UK on the Melodisc sub-label Bluebeat, a now iconic imprint started in 1949 by Briton Emil Shalit that went on to become a pivotal catalyst in the growth of Jamaican music in the UK. With Millie now on the radar of one of the UK's biggest importers of Caribbean music, Coxon would try to capitalize on her growing fan base in this lucrative market. But on the advice of Roy Panton, who was six years her senior, Millie quickly realized that her previous works with Coxon had provided no real financial satisfaction and in turn opted to work with other producers. Island would step in to recut the duo's single This World with the equally impressive Never Say Goodbye on the B-side. However, This World had been previously recorded for Studio One but was never released and the duo would continue to rework a few unreleased cocks and cuts, a move that left him with a bitter taste for the two. By the early 60s, Millie was a household name in the British Jamaican diaspora and Blue Beat would show its confidence in the young star by releasing the first EP record from a homegrown artist. 1963's Millie and Blue Beat would serve as a four-track compilation of her best duo works including recordings with Owen Gray delivered on a 12-inch vinyl disc. My little girl. Bluebeat's strategy to release the album as a rhythm and blues record opened Millie's music to a wider audience in the UK and soon the Jamaican teen was quickly being hailed as a rising pop sensation with her fused backdrop of ska instrumentals and R&B style vocals becoming known as the Bluebeat sound and soon Millie being dubbed the Bluebeat girl. But quietly in the background 
Chris Blackwell was taking notes. Let's not forget, Blackwell's winning knack in music was spotting a hit record and this evolved into betting on a star, a skill that would weave island records into one of the world's most respected recording outfits. He would follow this instinct and convince Millie that together she could maximize on her UK popularity and break the ceiling for local acts in its mainstream market. Millie took the plunge and migrated to the UK in the summer of 1963 on Blackwell's expense, engaging in a series of intense training courses to help improve her diction, vocal stamina, and live performance delivery. As the winter of 63 settled in, Chris began searching his private record collection for a single that could be easily covered by Millie. But as the saying goes, reggae's history is built on a series of fortunate events and along with the luck of that rudimentary charm, Chris Blackwell had a plan. Let's rewind the reggae timeline to find out where it started. My Boy Lollipop was originally written as My Girl Lollipop in 1955 by Robert Spencer, an early group member of the Cadillacs. Now, rumors abound at how recording executive Robert Levy earned the copyrights to the single, but in those days, as still common as all today, the life of an artist came with heavy expenses and willing loan sharks of all shapes and sizes stood in close quarters. The original singer of My Boy Lollipop was a 14-year-old Brooklyn teen named Bobby Gay. Spotted by a reputed mobster and the convicted trademark offender Corky Vastola while she harmonized with friends on a street corner in Coney Island, New York. Later, Corky convinced his associate Robert Levy to loan him the song sheet for the single My Girl Lollipop and history's wheels began to turn. Barbie would switch the title of the song to My Boy Lollipop, skipping school and taking the subway to a mid-Manhattan studio where she collaborated with guitarist Leroy Kirkland and his session band to produce the ska-inspired rift in the 1956 recording. Vastola would give Barbie a $200 payment after the session which would be the only payment she ever collected. The Barbie Gay original would sell marginally in the tri-state area, earning the teen neighborhood popularity that was quickly short-circuited by a cover version from a 5-foot-2-inch small island girl. Now let's fast forward to the winter of 1963. The Millie Small Venture had thinned out Chris Blackwell's resources having taken the risk on a meager budget to underwrite Millie's preparation for her future stardom. It had left him with little wriggle room to push Island Records forward in the coming year. His selection, however, of Barbie Gay's original recording would prove to be another winning bet and one of the most fateful moments in Jamaican music history. Well, my boy, 
Ernie Ranglin would improvise on Lee Kirkland's guitar rift and the infamous harmonica brick that has been claimed by many, with a few fingers pointed at Rod Stewart, was actually cut by American Pete Hogman, a musician most noted for his work with the 50s studio session band The Sharptoons. On the back of Millie's growing UK track record, Blackwell would convince Fontana to distribute a few releases including My Boy Lollipop, which they did initially in Italy and France. The success of the Millie small reprise in these markets proved her real mainstream potential, but the quiet success of the My Boy Lollipop single sparked a UK release in the Easter of 64, reaching number two on the UK pop charts by the peak of the summer only held out closely for the top spot by the Beach Boys' first number one hit, I Get Around. The hit track stateside release by Mercury Records label Smash was just as successful with the imprint utilizing her UK Blue Beat Girl star power to push the track to number two in the US market. The single repeated its number two chart presence for several weeks in Canada before topping the charts in Australia and by the close of 1964, My Boy Lollipop had sold nearly 700,000 45s, eventually selling over 5 million copies and in the process becoming the fastest selling 7-inch single from a Jamaican artist, man or woman, a record she held until the release of Lady Patra's monster hit, Pull Up to the Bumper, in 1995. Her transatlantic success would secure her a slot in Jamaica's historic 1964 World Fair delegation, and on her return to the island that year, Millie served as the feature act across the island, with the likes of Otis Redding and Patti LaBelle serving as openers to her repeat stellar performances. Now let's stop for a minute. Let's keep in mind that at this stage of the game, Millie was barely an adult, 17 to be exact and the petite girl from Milk River Clarendon, unassuming as she was, learned quickly that her gamble in Chris Blackwell was paying off as it had done for him as well. 1964 would prove to be the peak year of her career as Millie's new international spotlight generated a grueling appearance schedule. Her feature on BBC's Ready Set Go TV showcase helped spark her bookings and the ensuing world tour would cover 10 countries and 27 cities and it was not an easy feat for the petite teen who suffered from bouts of food poisoning and chronic fatigue along the way. She returned to Jamaica for a short break and rest, recording a few singles with Jackie Edwards during her downtime, also releasing a cover of Fats Domino's hits for Fontana that did pretty well in Canada, Norway and New Zealand. But if there was ever a more understated fact in Jamaican music history, it is Millie Small's track record as a touring pioneer. She was the first Jamaican artist to tour in far-flung regions such as Italy, Japan, Singapore, and as far as Australia, just to name a few. All this years before Desmond Decker would take the stage as Jamaica's next international pop sensation. In the years that followed, 
she would continue to tour throughout Europe, Africa, and Eastern Asia, floated by reissues and previously unreleased recordings which helped feed her fans in the transatlantic. 1968, however, would prove to be a game-changing year. Between the start of the Vietnam War, the rise of the Black Civil Rights Movement, and British MP Enoch Powell's River of Blood speech, Jamaican music itself was undergoing rapid evolution, reflecting the signs of the times, and Millie Small's journey was no exception. That year, her contract with Island Records had expired, and although she had captured new fans in far-flung regions during her years of touring, Millie had lost ground with her core fan base, the black British community, who, like herself, was all grown up now and facing real issues. She would sign a deal with Decca Records and meet songwriter Eddie Wolfram, who convinced Millie to take the opportunity to shake her lollipop image. It was a good idea, considering that the new reggae soundscape was gaining traction in the diasporan markets. Millie experimented and found a solid hit with 1969's cover of Jackie Edwards' original My Love and I, with Millie's Tell Me About Yourself on the B-side for Pyramid Records. Good things come to those who wait Believe me darling All you gotta do is have a little faith The new sound connected with her transatlantic fans and she replied with two additional reggae-inspired hits that year. The conscious-driven President Records release, We Are All in a Zoo, and the Jimmy Cliff-produced ballad, Honey Hush, for Trojan Records, which, ironically, would be the last hit of her career. You see, things had started to get a bit muddled for Millie. The soundscape was once again changing. Reggae had found its roots and the roots had found rockers and Millie's efforts to channel a mature image was overshadowed by the lionization of Jamaica's music at the dawn of the 70s. However, the cleverly crafted single Enoch Power by her now manager Eddie Wolfram was a defiant tongue-in-cheek to Enoch Powell's absurd 1968 speech on immigration. Almost banned on UK airwaves, the single went over well with the British black community, but the effort was short-lived. 
Millie and her new partner, Eddie Wolfram, would attempt to capitalize on this resurgence and make a last-ditch effort to shake off her childish demeanor with a 1970 album release, Time Will Tell. To say the least, it was a jolt for fans and, might I add, a slight miscalculation on Eddie Wolfram's part with Millie seemingly a willing accessory. The album cover did succeed to break the mold of her virgin innocence and along with it the stereotypical expectations of a Jamaican female artist in the 1970s. The iconic cover with Millie provocatively straddling a larger-than-life overripe banana, topless, only in silk panties with a girthy red boat oar in hand. It was like the 70s version of Millie Cyrus naked on a wrecking ball. Besides from the taboo cover, UK fans also frowned at the album's unfamiliar soundscape, which found favor with audiences in Nigeria, Italy, and Singapore. That, however, was not a consolation for Trojan Records, as it had not connected in the label's main markets, and by 1970, she had been shelved by the label. Millie would leave the UK and live on and off in Singapore until around 1975, when Millie Small simply disappeared from the musical radar. Besides a platonic fling with Peter Asher sometime in the late 60s and a few news bullets of small shows in New Zealand, Nigeria, Singapore and Italy, nothing else was heard from the superstar and her presence faded. But why? It would seem Millie's business relationship with her then-songwriter and later manager Eddie Wolfram had soured after the release of the Time Will Tell album, and with Wolfram fronting most of her business arrangements, including royalty collection, it was unsurprising that Millie got served at the short end of the stick. Millie would try to stick it out on her own, but the effort brought little reward and her presence faded across the transatlantic and by 1978, she had slipped into obscurity. Near penniless on her return to the UK in 1984, the single mother would give birth to her daughter Jay Lee and attempts at music would be sidelined as life became a struggle for the first time in a long while. Sometime in 1987, rumors started circulating that Millie Small was spotted living in a youth hostel with her young child. After a news report on TV in the UK shed light on the issue, Chris Blackwell wasted no time in buying Millie a fully furnished home and ensuring guaranteed, comfortable royalty payments for perpetuity. In the years that followed, she rarely gave interviews, never returned to the stage, and though she hinted now and again at new music, she never did. But for all the bittersweet moments, and beyond the few tracks that we might know, it is her unwitting path as a musical pioneer that truly cements her place in reggae history. Millie Small validated Jamaica's music on an international platform an event which opened the floodgates for an entire generation of homegrown artists. Her sojourn as a live touring act introduced the sounds of Jamaica to new markets around the world, setting the stage for what was to come. Desmond Decker, Bob Marley and the Whalers, 
and the other legends of the time that walked through the gates of opportunity opened by Millie Small. She would transition in 2020 from a stroke at her home in London, leaving her musical legacy to her only child, Jay Lee, and closing another unforgettable chapter in Jamaican music history that has since stamped her name in the annals of time as a, as legend, a legend of reggae. reggae. The whole experience, it was great. I didn't worry because I knew what I was doing. I chose it and it was very interesting. I see how the other half live for choice. It's not that I was feeling sorry for myself. It's something I chose to do.